with the electorate. But, you know, everything we're talking about, um, you know, that's got some precedent either in different parts of Australia in various states or internationally. So these things can be done. They are sort of best practice internationally where we're trying to push things. And I think they would help reassure Australians that, that politics or policy is being made in the national interest. And to me, that is one important step in rebuilding trust. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today we're discussing the, stra- the state of Australia's democracy, no less. We're living through a remarkably volatile era in Australia. Politics is on the nose, trust in government is on the decline, and our democratic institutions are under stress. So what's going on and what might we be able to do to rebuild trust and ensure our political system is robust enough to produce the best policies in the public interest? To wrestle with these questions, I'm joined by not one, not two, but three experts in the field. Firstly, Grattan Institute Associate, Carmela Shivers. Hello. Welcome to you, Carmela. I'm also joined by Grattan Senior Associate, Kate Griffiths. Kate, welcome. Thanks, Paul. And finally, we're joined by the Director of Grattan's Institutional Reform Program, Danielle Wood. Hi, Danny. Hi, Paul. Now, the three of you have spent the better part of this year researching and writing an important new Grattan Institute report called Who's in the Room? Access and Influence in Australian Politics, which aims to chart a better path to a better politics in Australia. We'll get to the recommended reforms soon, but first, Danny, can I ask you, why did you see the need to do a report on the state of our democracy? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I think, you know, first of all, at Grattan, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about analysing advocating for public policy change. And you don't have to be in the public policy space for long to see that often well-resourced interests um, on the other side of the debate can often um, take good policy off the table or manipulate policy in their favour. So we were interested in the way in which policy processes are sometimes derailed by special interest groups. The other backdrop is the the one you touched on in your introduction about falling trust. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time um, in our previous report looking at why the minor party vote was rising. And one of the reasons that seemed to be behind that, or a very important reason, was falling trust in government. And in fact, government at the moment has the lowest levels of trust at any point since 1969, at least in the Australian electoral study. So trust is at an all-time low. And I think one of the reasons that sits behind that is cynicism about policy-making processes and whether policy is being made for the, the few, not the many. Okay, and paint the big canvas for us. What what have you discovered in preparing this report? Well, what we did was to look at the different levers of influence, so the way special interests try and influence the policy debate. So we've looked at political donations, we've looked at lobbying, we've looked at um, businesses and unions and not-for-profits hiring you know, former ministers mm-hmm. or staffers to try and build their connections. We've looked at public campaigns. And the overarching feel, I think, is that often we've got very poor transparency around influence and access in our system, particularly at the federal level, and also the rules and regulations that are there to try and ensure that groups don't have too much influence are often weak and poorly enforced. 
But is there really a problem? Just persuade me, because Australia's democratic system is admired around the world, is it not? Our democratic system is strong. And we're not talking in our report about outright corruption, which is the problem in, in some other countries. You know, the, the clear, I give you money in return for, for a political decision. What we're talking about is kind of the grey area of undue influence. Mm -hmm. So the idea that money and connections can get you more access with policymakers and perhaps have an influence over policy decisions. And that's something, you know, even if it only happens occasionally, we should all be concerned about. All right. So you've mentioned access and you've mentioned money. I want to drill into some of those um, problems now. Kate, you've worked extensively on a fascinating chapter in this report, which is headed the access problem in Australian politics. Describe that problem for me. Sure, Paul. So there's really three big risk factors around access in Australian politics. The first is, is the secrecy around access. So there's a lot we don't know. And in terms of um, there, that we see in Queensland and in New South Wales, ministers are actually brave enough to publish their diaries, who they meet with, and full credit to them. But we don't see that at the federal level. So we can't see who our federal ministers meet with. The second big risk factor uh, around access is to do with the imbalance. So for the meetings that we do see, we see a heavy skew towards uh, what we call high regulation businesses. And they are businesses in industries like mining, property development, uh, gambling, transport, the sorts of industries where government policy decisions make a big difference to the bottom line. And it's not surprising that these businesses are the ones knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. What's worrying, I guess, about it is how few meetings are going to other groups. We know uh, there's there were very few meetings for unions, for other businesses, for consumer and community groups. I would add, though, that unions, we we know, have other access channels, um, particularly, obviously, within the Labor Party. So it's really the, the lack of consumer and community voices that we're concerned by. And then just on the third risk factor, what we see is that um, access does actually seem to pay off in terms of influence sometimes. So we've seen several examples of peak bodies of uh, individuals, powerful individuals, and um, some of these high regulation businesses blocking reforms that would have had broad public support or um, with a seat at the table to regulate their own industry or even uh, pitching kind of unsolicited proposals, new projects, for example, a new Sydney casino James Packer's pitched. And these sorts of um, proposals, whilst they're not it's not a corrupt activity, uh, it is uh, very much at risk of, of policy capture, of diverting policy away from the public interest. So you've mentioned James Packer's casino in Sydney as an example. Just tell me a bit more about that. What are your concerns there and what are some other examples of access apparently resulting in undue influence? So the Sydney Casino one is an interesting one because it was an unsolicited proposal. And there's always a risk around unsolicited proposals uh, because government tends to negotiate exclusively with, um, with the party that's put forward the proposal because it's their idea. Um, and the risk is that instead of putting it out to t competitive tender um, and getting the cheapest or the best uh, solution, you get 
the solution that came first. You get mm-hmm. the solution on the table first. And, and that seems to be the case with Packers Casino, where he had contacts uh, within government. Uh, he had lobbyists working for him on both sides of politics. Uh, he pitched the proposal and it was quickly backed before any kind of independent review. There was a later counterbid that we saw in that particular example, and that was assessed by an independent steering committee, um, but no formal tender process ever eventuated. And of course, uh, there are major concessions for that casino over time. So we've seen concessions in terms of the tax rate, we've seen concessions in terms of smoke-free laws, lockout laws in Sydney, etc. So it, it looks smells like a special deal. Okay, you also talked about industry being around the table when regulation and policy for that industry is being decided. Surely that doesn't happen in Australia. Unfortunately it does, yeah. And a colleague of ours, Stephen Duckett's written a bit on this um, in terms of the pharmaceuticals industry and how pharmaceuticals are priced in Australia. Mm -hmm. Medicines Australia, one of the major lobby groups, is at the table for some of those major decisions on the formula for determining prices. Um, and look, there's, there are other examples too where um, you see uh, in recent political debates we've seen Pokey's reforms proposed and then blocked. We've seen um, obviously climate change policy has been a mess for a decade. And, and but you, were su- you were suggesting to me that the Pokey's industry is a powerful lobbyist. Um, what, what's, what's the evidence there? So the Pokey's industry donates in timely ways, and I'm sure Carmela can tell us a bit more about that. But they also, um, uh, they're also particularly in the room in the sense that the gambling industry makes up less than 1% of the Australian economy, but uh, it is uh, gaining sort of 5 10% of, of, um, min- of business meetings. So mm-hmm. doing very well, punching above its weight. Okay, we will get to Carmela on the money issue very shortly. But as well as talking about who's in the room, you talk about the revolving door that goes into that room. Tell us a bit more about that. What do we mean by this revolving door in this context? Sure. So the revolving door is the idea that, uh, or the reality that many ministers after they leave politics move into lobbying roles and many lobbyists move into politics, whether that be as a ministerial staffer um, or a political appointment. So we see this kind of cosiness, I guess, and uh, the revolving door phenomenon has been growing. So in the uh, last six years, we've seen it jump from about a quarter of lobbyists who are registered to about a third of lobbyists. And we kind of know that there are many more out there because there are lots uh, of former ministers who, um, who don't count and under the definition of, of a lobbyist. And then we've also seen, um, whilst there are some rules in place to restrict um, this movement, so to delay the movement of a minister, for example, into a lobbying role, um, mm-hmm. there's supposed to be an 18-month time period where they um, where they wait before lobbying, and that has been breached on many occasions. We've seen lots of examples of that, essentially because there's very little, um, there's there's really no penalty available when a minister's left politics. Essentially, they sign up to um, or commit when they become a minister to not lobby for 18 months afterwards. But once they've left that position, they can go ahead without um, a reprimand from parliament, it seems. Mm, Okay. So, Kamala, can I bring you in here, please, because I want to talk about money. You've worked closely on the chapter that's titled The Money Problem in Australian Politics. So tell me more, please. What is this money problem? (laughs) Yeah, good question. Um, Look, the biggest problem is that there's 
an enormous amount of money in the system that we know nothing about. Um, it's actually quite staggering how how little we know about where parties get their income from. Um, at the last election, over 40% of party income wasn't declared um, to the AEC, the Australian Electoral Commission. How can that be? As much as 40% of the party's income we know nothing about? That's right. Um, our disclosure threshold in Australia is relatively high by international standards. Parties only have to declare donations of $13,800 or more. Um, and so probably what's happening is a lot of those, uh, a lot of that income is donations under the threshold. Now, some of that is probably coming from mum and dad donors who are contributing small amounts to their favoured political party. Um, but there's also a risk that some of that funding could be coming from what's called donation splitting, which is where smaller or large donations are split up into smaller ones and parties don't need to declare those on their returns to the Australian Electoral Commission. And we've found evidence of that or we suspect that that's what going, what's going on? We suspect that might be part of what's going on and there are plenty of other commentators um, who, have, who have made that point as well. Um, the Senate inquiry on political donations earlier this year uh, pointed to this as potentially being a problem. Um, I think the real issue is that we just we just don't know what where that funding has come from. Um, and if it is the case that it's sausage sizzles and mum and dads, then um, it's potentially not a problem at all. Uh, but it could also be these this other income donation splitting, and uh, that's. That's a really big problem. Okay, so we don't know about 40%, which seems quite remarkable, but presumably we do know about 60%. What do we know of where the money comes from for Australia's political parties at election time? Yeah, so at the last election, about 30% of party receipts came from public funding, and that's mm -hmm. from the Australian Electoral Commission and also state electoral commissions. Um, and then the remainder is declared private income. That's donations. There were $43 million worth of um, donations at the last election. Declared and donations declared that donations, we know about that's to right. all the parties? To all the parties, yeah. Uh, and the rest is what's called other receipts, which are uh, mm. declared private income that is not technically a gift. So it could be payments for a service or um, income from investments. Uh, and sometimes the parties declare strange things like um, ATO tax returns and things like that as well in the other receipts category. So who are some of the biggest donors and to which parties? The, what we do know is that um, declared private funding is remarkably concentrated. So declared donations in particular, 5% of donors gave more than 50% of all declared donations. Uh, and the biggest donors are unions like um, the shop, the SDA, the Shoppies Union, the CFMEU and United Voice. Uh, and there are also friends of the Liberal Party like mining magnate Paul Marx. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also sort of mysterious organisations like Osgold Mining Group, uh, which is run by a lady who set up a foundation called the Julie Bishop Glorious Foundation last year. Remember it well. <laughs> yeah. So 
Just clarify for me, do you think that there should be no private money in our political funding? Should it all come from the taxpayer? No, absolutely not. Why not? Donations play a really important role in our political system and they're protected by the Constitution. The Constitution has an implied freedom of political communication and as part of that, political donations are protected as political as means to engage in political communication. So even if we wanted to ban all donations, we couldn't. Um, They're here to stay. The question is how do you make sure that donations don't translate into undue influence? Right, and I think you might have found some examples where industries up their donations at times when there is debate about policy matters that affect their businesses and their shareholders. And then, lo and behold, when the political storm has passed, the donations dry up. Is that right? That's exactly right. And and we think that that suggests that um, some donors believe perhaps rightly that donating can influence policy debates. A pertinent example comes from the gambling industry. In 2010, Julia Gillard agreed with Andrew Wilkie to bring in legislation to um, protect problem gamblers from uh, the impact of pokies machines. Mm -hmm. Um, And shortly after that, donations from the industry went from about $200,000 to the coalition up to nearly a million dollars the following financial year. And then came back down and after the... That's right. And then they, after the storm passed, um, they returned back to similar levels from before the change. So, Danny, can I bring you back in here? One of the final chapters of the report is about a different issue, I think, about the battle for the hearts and minds of Australians. So this is... Up front, this is outside of those dark, shadowy rooms. This is upfront uh, campaigns for people's uh, support and for people's vote. What, what do you mean that there's a problem with this battle for the hearts and minds of Australians? Well, there's not necessarily a problem. As you say, it's actually the exact opposite of what we're talking about elsewhere in the report. This is mm. not kind of behind closed doors. This is out in the open. Um, So there's different ways, of course, people try and win hearts and minds. The first could be through a big public advertising campaign and probably the most iconic one example of that is the um, the mining industry campaign against the mining tax Mm -hmm. where they spent, I think, $20 million um, campaigning, although they reportedly had a budget of $100 million. Mm. um, But they they got a deal on the table before they moved into the, the full attack mode. Um, And there's many other examples, of course, of of people running those sort of big public campaigns. And we might come back to it when we talk about the recommendations, but if you move into a world where you start to cap political spending by the major parties, you do need to think about what you do with third-party spending and those types of campaigns as well, because the risk is, of course, um, third-party money gets diverted. So instead of going to the political parties, it goes into third-party campaigns. So Mm. you might have to look at that as part of a broader set of reforms to donations. But what's wrong with me turning on my TV or listening to the radio and hearing a political campaign by a third party, which I can make up my mind about? Well, there's one one risk is misinformation, of course. If people are putting out 
material that's um, misleading in some way. Sure. And that can actually be a risk, um, it's less often a risk in terms of um, public advertising because there's various um, you know, rules around misleading the public. It sometimes happens though when um, campaigns are run to try and influence journalists and there'll be things like um, commissioning economic studies that, that might come up with some big numbers about why you wouldn't want to change policy. And often the media doesn't drill down on that work as perhaps as much as they could. And you can end up with, um, you know, numbers which have little bearing on reality floating around in the public debate. So this rings a few bells. There's been some examples of this recently, haven't there, Danny? Um, So this is an issue dear to my heart. We did some work on negative gearing and, and since then... Um, the industry or various players in the industry have commissioned consulting reports saying, you know, there'll be Armageddon in the property market if negative gearing changes go ahead. Often these are coming from black box models. They're very difficult even for for experts on the other side to interrogate. And journalists um, sometimes will kind of run those big numbers with um, very little sort of caveats or checks on Mm -hmm. the veracity of the claims. All right. So I want to get to the hard part now. You've all managed to convince me that we have a problem here or indeed a whole suite of problems. But the big and the difficult question is what can or should we do about it? Have you got some thoughts about that, Danny? Yeah, we we have a number of recommendations for for what needs to change. Um, We focus, first of all, on improving transparency in policy making. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the problems that we've identified with donations, with lobbying, with the revolving door come about because the public and the media have very little visibility over some of these issues. How do we improve transparency in these dark rooms and behind those closed doors? Can I ask you that, Kate? Absolutely. So one of the things we could do is start to publish ministerial diaries like Queensland and New South Wales already do. Um, So that would tell us who federal ministers are meeting with. And what that does is that it gives the public, it gives the media and it gives the parliament itself the opportunity um, to call out when, for example, a politician is meeting only with one side of the debate. And so it sort of starts to address some of the imbalance that can happen with those big public spending campaigns, for example, that Danny was mentioning, and some of the imbalance that can happen behind closed doors as well when you're only meeting with one side of the debate. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other areas that... Um, could, we could provide some more transparency around is who has um, access, regular, unescorted access to Parliament House. And it's this sort of privileged orange pass which um, which exists. Uh, there's 1,750 people who have one of these and we don't know who they are. But How do I get an orange pass? <laughs> but exactly, good question. To get one, you need to, have, um, you need to have a contact in Parliament House who can vouch for your good character. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, you have to be able to uh, prove that you need regular access to Parliament House to do your job. And right. I guess when we think about what a lobbyist um, is... Someone who needs regular access to politicians um, sounds a lot like a lobbyist to us. So if I'm a lobbyist and I have an orange pass to Parliament, why should you or anyone else know about it? Because you're having an opportunity to influence behind closed doors and knowing the spectrum of people who have that opportunity would help to understand whether we actually have a wide range of input or we have a problem where there are many voices who are perhaps underrepresented. And even just knowing that gives the opportunity for the media, for example, to correct some of that for other groups to to see these things and then maybe apply for an orange pass too, um, or for you know politicians themselves to be more aware of of where uh, they might be skewed one way or the other. 
Okay, so transparency is obviously a key, Danny. What what else can we do, in particular in the money in the money area? Well, again, transparency mm-hmm. could be hugely improved, and Carmel has already pointed to a lot of flaws in the current regime. That means that there's a lot of money we don't know much about. Um, so the other thing that we believe needs to happen is levelling the playing field. At the moment, we have a lot of private money in the system. We spend a lot on um, advertising during election periods. So we're supporting a cap on political party advertising during election campaigns. The idea of that is it will reduce the imbalance in spending between different groups, but also really importantly, it reduces the reliance of parties on major donors. So once that cap is binding, each donor in theory is replaceable with another person. Yeah, on that, I think the most important thing we can do to improve transparency about money in our political system is to aggregate donations under the threshold. So donors actually already have to do this in their returns, but parties don't. Um, And because there are other issues with donor declarations, um, the first thing we could do to find out more about uh, that very high level of income that's undisclosed is to make sure that donations can't be split up into smaller pieces and then not put on party returns. So that's the first thing. Um, We also could think about lowering the threshold for disclosure. Uh, There is an argument that $13,800 is much too high. That's much more than an average Australian could afford to pay um, to support their own favoured political cause. Uh, And we've suggested that a a better threshold would be something like $5,000. And lastly, the thing that we could do is to make the disclosures themselves more accessible. Simply disclosing doesn't necessarily equal more transparency if the disclosures are very difficult to work through. And Mm. at the moment they are, it's taken us a long time to get to the point where we can say anything meaningful about the donations disclosures. Uh, And other states are way ahead of the Commonwealth on this. Like, um, For instance, Queensland, they have real-time donations disclosure during their election campaigns. Um, And it all goes through this online portal, which is really easy to use. And anybody in Queensland can log on and quickly see who is giving money to their political parties. Whereas in contrast, at the Commonwealth level, we have to wait, you know, up to 19 months to see who's donated, which is, you know, in this day and age, it's really not good enough. Inexplicable, isn't it? Okay, so a cap on political spending at election time, Danny, how might that work and where should we set that cap? We don't come to a firm position in the report about where that cap should be set. But I think very clearly you'd want to set it at a level that still gives the parties an opportunity to communicate their political messages broadly. Mm -hmm. But as I said, at the moment, we have really high um, spending during election campaigns in Australia. So it probably could be set below where current levels of spending are. The other trick with a cap is there also need to be a cap on third parties, because otherwise you have a situation where instead of, um, you know, for example, donating for the Labor Party, the unions will run their own campaigns. And so, would, would there be any constitutional difficulties in, in that matter? If I'm a third party wanting to put a political message and I am able to fund it, uh, is the government or the state able to prevent me doing that or to limit the amount of money I can spend doing that? 
There is a case before the High Court at the moment on this very issue to do with the caps in New South Wales. Mm. I think one of the issues at hand in that particular case is there's, under recent changes by the New South Wales government, there's now a very big disparity in the caps for political parties and third parties, whereas the caps for political parties used to be about I think eight or nine times higher than than the, the cap on third party spending. They've brought down that third party cap and now I think it's uh, political parties can spend about 22 times mm. the amount of a third party. Um, so the implementation matters. You want to make sure political parties will need to have a higher cap because they're the key players in the elections and the ones that need to be getting their voices out there. But you don't want to introduce so much of a disparity between political parties and third parties that you're you know, not allowing others to put their views into the, the public domain and potentially giving yourself problems in the High Court. Mm-hmm. Okay, and a final uh, issue that I would like you to address, politicians' behaviour, and in particular misbehaviour. Is there more that we can or should do in that field? Kate? There absolutely is. So ministers have a code of conduct, um, as do lobbyists, but not um, other parliamentarians. And um, that means there's no rules around gifts, hospitality, around sponsored overseas trips. And we do see that that backbenchers and shadow ministers are offered these things. So um, the problem with these sorts of things is that they do create a sense of um, reciprocity or mm-hmm. risk of that. And uh, what we'd like to see is just some clarification around these kinds of conflicts of interest. So... A code of conduct uh, for parliamentarians would be a good step in that direction. Um, We could also um, vastly improve the administration of the existing codes, which would be around uh, separating them from from parliament and from the prime minister's office and moving the administration to an independent body. So independent administration of the codes is really key. And that could take a number of forms. Um, we would suggest it'd be a good idea to have um, an ethics advisor, for example, so that parliamentarians can actually seek advice when in doubt. Mm-hmm. We would also suggest uh, that there be a federal uh, integrity or anti-corruption commission that can deal with more serious issues if they arise. So essentially someone to refer matters to for investigation if they arise. So this is a recommendation of the report, a crime and corruption commission covering federal parliamentarians and public servants? Others have looked at this issue in um, greater detail, so we defer to them on the specific model. Uh, But what we suggest is essentially that uh, parliament review a model for such a body that could be both a gateway for uh, whistleblowers, for example, for tips and complaints about potential misconduct and a a way of um, investigating issues when they arise, because currently there isn't a body to do that. There is a real gap in our federal integrity system there. Danny, can I ask you to um, sum up for us and answer a question that intrigues me? After all this work looking at the problems and the deficiencies in our democracy and in our institutions. Where do you think Australia's at? Are you are you confident, are you optimistic that we can, if you like, battle through this period of volatility and declining trust and that, again, ha- we, we might have a, a democracy that we can all feel proud of and get behind? I, I am optimistic, actually. I think that... The types of institutional reforms we've been talking about today are ones that are doable. 
they're within the reach of our parliaments. Mm -hmm. I think I would like to see them happen with with bipartisan or cross-party support. I think that's actually really important when you're talking about changing parliamentary processes and things that go to integrity. Having all sides kind of come and work together is something that would be really positive and I think would actually also improve the, the standing mm-hmm. of the parliament with the with the electorate. But, you know, everything we're talking about, um, you know, there's got some precedent either in different parts of Australia, in various states or internationally. So these things can be done. They are sort of best practice internationally where we're trying to push things. And I think they would help reassure Australians that, that politics or policy is being made in the national interest. And to me, that is one important step in rebuilding trust as well as perhaps a period of leadership stability could be could be nice on both sides. <laughs> That'd be nice too, wouldn't it? Well, thank you, Danielle, Kate and Carmela for your work on this important report and for your thoughts and insights today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you'd like to read Grattan's reports and articles on institutional reform, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.